0: This is the podcast where you can listen to my award winning audiobook, But He Spit in My Coffee. I'm Carrie Williams, the author. Cindy Peller is our reader. If you haven't been with us since the beginning, I suggest going back to start with episode one. 72. After several months at Archway House, Medicaid's length of stay guidelines dictates another move for Devin, even though he has not made any progress on his treatment goals and has only become more non compliant and physically aggressive. This will be his third lateral move to another PRTF. Our caseworker is concerned that Devin is becoming resistant to treatment, that he's become institutionalized. She pulls some strings and calls in favors to get him into Spring Harbor, the best facility for attachment work in the county. It's local, which means we can also go back to regular home visits and in-person family therapy, too. I'm optimistic that one good placement can reverse our negative momentum. As I arrive on campus with Devon, I begin to understand why Spring Harbor has such a daunting waiting list. It looks like a college campus with stately buildings nestled into picturesque woods and set on manicured lawns. Devon's new cottage is a modern building with a full kitchen and sunny living room. He'll have his own private bedroom and bathroom. After we complete the intake paperwork, I briefly meet with Devin's petite new therapist, Molly. She has an adorable bubble of a pregnant belly. I sure hope Devin never turns on her. Within days, Spring Harbor is regularly flashing across my cell phone. Devin antagonizes his peers, damages property, disrupts the classroom, and is physically aggressive. He runs away, and staff, following Spring Harbor's baffling protocol, trails him through the woods for hours. Another time, he climbs over the security fence and takes off down the road. Staff follows him on a bicycle. He gets road rash when they restrain him on the asphalt. When they go for outings, he tries to open the van door and to climb out the windows while the vehicle is still moving. He breaks a plastic cup and uses the shards as shanks. He throws DVDs, bites, kicks, and punches. He refuses to do any classwork. What bothers me most are the continued reports that he strips down naked during some outbursts. This behavior started at Treehouse and is still happening with concerning regularity two placements later. What teenage boy does that? I try to imagine a scenario, any scenario, where Amias would become so upset that he'd strip naked like that. I can't. To me, this behavior may signal true psychosis. And if so, perhaps we need to relook at his medications. I have asked Molly about doing a med wash, taking Devin off of all his medications and starting fresh. Obviously, the medications he's on aren't helping. And who knows how much of his behavior could be affected by side effects and interactions of the medications that have been layered one on top of the other. She said the Spring Harbor psychiatrist refused. No reason given. Molly discourages me from discussing incidents at Spring Harbor with Devon, But I need to understand why he's running around naked. During our next home visit, he eagerly watches as I prepare a late Sunday lunch. I'm making his favorite, salmon fillets, and they're roasting in the oven. I ask, they said you got upset about having to go inside the other day. Can I help? He asks, peering across the countertop at the salad I'm making. I still the knife. I watch as Devon's eyes fixate on the shiny metal. I shake my head. I'm being ridiculous. He's looking at the vegetables. He loves salad. I say, thanks. But I'm almost done. So tell me what happened. Them said we could stay out and play. Another kid got it into trouble, so we all had to go in. Everyone gets punished for what one kid does? He nods. Them say there's not enough staff. It's not fair. I chop a tomato into rough chunks, knowing how many times Devin has been the kid who cost everyone wreck time. I agree with him, though, it's not fair. What I don't understand is why you would run around naked. Devin nibbles on a fingernail and fidgets. If he's embarrassed discussing it, why isn't he embarrassed doing it? After a few beats of silence, he says, Them won't restrain me if I don't have no clothes on. A sharp heat slices across my finger. My eyes jerk down to the blood gushing from the wound. You okay? Okay. Devon hurries around the counter to help. I grab a paper towel and wince as I press it to the cut. My finger throbs and blood seeps through the paper towel as I let the full ramifications of Devin's words sink in. Devin gets a Band-Aid out of the junk drawer. I try to put it on myself but can't do it one-handed. Thank you, I tell Devin as he helps me. Going back to our conversation, I say, I don't understand. You take your clothes off so they won't restrain you? Reanimated by the topic, Devin throws out his arms. They don't need to be doing that. They shouldn't be touching me. They got no right. I wouldn't want to be restrained either. An involuntary shudder courses through me at just the thought of being trapped like that. But you do understand that they can't let you hurt yourself or someone else. But I'm not going to really hurt anyone. Devin clears his throat, then says in a conspiratorial tone, I go into the bathroom and bedroom, too, when I'm doing that. What What do you mean? There are no cameras in there. And it all clicks. It's a way to avoid being restrained and to avoid the tattletale cameras. It's egregious, yes, but I still feel better. I've always known his fits of rage are behavioral. Now I know his naked fits of rage are behavioral, too. They're just a clever thwarting of the system, not part of some psychosis. Later, on the drive back to Spring Harbor, I tell Devin, You know, the staff won't be as nice to you if you keep making things hard for them. They'll find little ways to get back at you. Devin looks at me through the rear-view mirror, uncharacteristically focused. I continue. They might not pick you for an activity or let you have extra chances, or maybe they'll give you the smallest cookie. Do you know what I mean? He nods that he understands. For his sake, I hope that he does. The next day I get a call from Molly. She tells me that Devin is acting up because he had such a bad home visit. He's told them he was made to watch everyone else in the family eat his favorite dinner while he was given only a bowl of cereal. 73. Devin is agitated. Mr. Andy punched me in the face, and he kicked me in the ribs. His face looks completely normal, with no marks or visible bruises or swelling. How could a grown man punch you and not leave a mark, I ask. Devin shrugs. I promise him did. Molly keeps her tone neutral. Can you tell us what happened? Devin mumbles. I don't remember. I blacked out. Let me bring up the incident report, Molly says as she taps keys on her laptop. Let's see here. You were spraying Axe Cologne in your peers' faces. Says here, it wasn't hurting Nobody. Devin interrupts, it stinked in that room. The kids was farting. That's why I was doing it with the axe. You threatened Mr. Andy and said, I'm going to tell them you punched me in the face so you get fired. Molly looks up from her screen. Did you say that? Devin picks at a scab on one of his knuckles and doesn't respond or make eye contact says here you punched yourself in the face, then you vomited on staff's legs and attempted to bite them. Molly's face doesn't betray what she thinks. She simply fixes Devin with a long gaze, but he doesn't respond. Molly tells both of us that she's watched the video and the footage shows the entire incident. Mr. Andy did not punch Devin. Devin did punch himself. Despite this, Mr. Andy is now on unpaid administrative leave until the investigation is complete. Devin ducks his head on a smirk. When you were feeling upset about the smell, did you try to use any of your coping skills? Molly asks. As they talk, panic punches behind my ribs. What would happen if Devin made an accusation against me? Witnesses, even a video hasn't saved Mr. Andy from a CPS investigation. At the house, there are no cameras, and no staff. Shifting in my seat, I say, I'm really concerned about the false allegations that Devin is making. For now, I think we should have our family visits on the campus where there are cameras and staff. Devin's head flies up. I wouldn't do that to you. I only do that to staff. Actually, you have done it to me. Devon shakes his head. Yes, you did, just this past week. You told Ms. Molly that I didn't feed you and made you watch everyone else eat. I was kidding. His eyes glass into teary pools. I made that dinner special for you, Devon, because I knew it was your favorite. I say, venturing the tiniest bit of vulnerability. He begs. Give me one more chance, please. I was kidding. In moments like this, he's a little boy again with chocolate brown eyes, a spattering of freckles and a hopeful future. Sometimes things are too serious and dangerous for chances, I say softly. I ask Molly, do you have staff who could escort Devin on home visits? We don't offer a service like that. I'd be willing to private pay, but Molly says that it's not possible. After Devin and I say our goodbyes, she escorts him back to the unit while I wait. When she returns, she says, and there's one thing I did want to ask you about, but not in front of Devin. Okay, I say apprehensively. I know this can be a sensitive topic for adoptive parents, but I think it's important for Devin. He has some basic questions about his birth mom. He'd like to know her name and why he was put up for adoption. We explored this a little, and I feel his behaviors could be due to anxiety over not knowing anything about her. I give a mirthless laugh, marveling that after all these years, Devon can still surprise me. Misunderstanding my laugh, Molly quickly says, try not to take this personally. This isn't about you. It's about Devin's desire to understand who he is in his own history. I hold up a hand to stop her. It's not that. I chose to contact their birth mom years ago, even though it's a closed adoption. I don't know why Devin told you that. He's been in contact with his birth mother for over a year. Molly's mouth falls open. She even came to visit and stayed at our house. Molly stumbles. He said doesn't know anything about her not even her name. Molly calls me to let me know that we don't need to start having our visits with Devon on campus in the visitation room after all. I explained to him exactly why you're so concerned about false allegations, she tells me. You could be arrested. You could lose your other kids. False allegations could ruin your life. Molly recounts her words to Devon. She continues, "'When I explained this to Devin, he was very upset. "'Now that he knows how serious this is, "'you have nothing to worry about. "'I'm dumbfounded. "'Molly has handed Devin the proverbial user's manual "'to a weapon that can destroy our family. "'In an earnest voice, she asks, "'Can I let Devin know you'll be picking him up "'on Saturday morning as usual for his visit?' I squeeze my eyes tightly shut, knowing I have to refuse. But also knowing Molly doesn't understand. And this is only going to make me look like a bad mom. 74. Devin strips naked and masturbates in front of staff and his peers. Molly says there was no trigger that set him off. Wearily, I end the call and jot down the details in my notebook and put the incident out of my mind and go on with my day. When Devin calls later that evening, I brace myself for tiresome excuses and blame shifting. What's up? I say. "Mm, I had a hard time today. The kids was annoying me. And that's a reason to run around naked? That's not an excuse. Steph was making me do it. I've heard enough. That's unacceptable. When you're ready to take responsibility for your actions, you can call me back. I hang up, and he doesn't call back. The next morning, I'm driving home after dropping the kids off at school, sipping coffee and listening to a local talk radio. Spring Harbor's nurse calls. I'm calling to notify you of a second incident Devin had yesterday. This one was at about 10 p.m.? I shake my head, exasperated, as she continues. He hit a worker in the eye with a plastic toy, then became agitated and had to be restrained. He accidentally hit his head. We took him to the ER last night, and he got 11 stitches, but the CT scan was clear. I make a U-turn. Molly meets me at the door of the facility. As we walk down the hall, she tells me the worker that Devin injured, Mr. Jamal, has a scratched retina, but is expected to make a full recovery. Since Devin was hurt, too, they're investigating and have placed Mr. Jamal on administrative leave. Before leading me into the conference room, Molly pauses. I want to warn you, Devin's had a rough night. He doesn't raise his head when we enter. I pull a chair next to his, reach for his chin, and lift his face. I gape. His face is lumpy like a boxer after a match. His lips are swollen. Red bruises streak his throat and blood is caked inside his nose. Garish black stitches track their way across his hairline. He mumbles something about Mr. Jamal beating him up. My stomach churns not knowing what's true, what's exaggeration, and what's an outright lie. It's hard to imagine a worker beating Devin but him accidentally hitting his head during a restraint like what Molly and the nurse have described to me? That I can easily imagine. Wait, are those finger marks on his neck? How can that be an accident? Several days later, after reviewing the video footage for herself, Molly confirms there was staff misconduct. I file a police report and have Devin transferred to another facility. The new PRTF is four hours away. They have an acute unit on site, which means that Devin's scheme of upping the ante sky-high to get to the hospital doesn't work. He's simply taken across the building to the acute ward, stabilized, then returned to his normal unit. Life goes on at home. I study for my PMP certification exam, a project management credential. Delano begins working as an armored truck driver and enjoys the job. We plant a garden with snap peas and cherry tomatoes, which the kids pop off and eat as snacks. Devon's empty bedroom seems like a waste of space, so I convert it into a playroom with an Xbox and pull-out couch for sleepovers. I can easily put the room back together for Devon when he comes home. The kids' lives are busy with school, sports, and friends. Most importantly, everyone is as safe as possible. I've learned the way to keep Devin in treatment facilities is by being laser-focused on the danger he poses to himself and his siblings. When it comes right down to it, the therapists don't really care about attachment, food issues, lying, refusal to participate in school, running away, cursing, or any other behavioral issues. They definitely don't care if he's causing me any physical or psychological harm. They only care if he's a danger to himself or other children. If there's a bottom line, that's it. Unfortunately, by the time Devin has been in any one place for a few months, staff become frightened of false allegations. They promise him puppies and iPads, anything to keep him happy and under control. One worker even hints to Devin that he may be able to get a new adoptive family. This type of false hope doesn't help Devin, but frustrated staff and baffled therapists become more pragmatic and short-sighted as his discharge date from their facility approaches. Devin never stays in any one place for long. Family therapy, monthly CFT meetings, and near-daily calls about Devin's incidents are my normal. I continue to insist that all of our visits are on campus and with staff supervision. Sometimes Becky and her kids go with me to the visits. Devin calls home three or four times per week. Facility after facility, therapist after therapist, I work to keep Devin safely in care. Whenever I wonder if I'm doing the right thing and toy with the idea of bringing him home, Becky is the booming voice of reason. And she's right. I can't supervise him 24-7. If he wrapped a shirt around his neck or tried to hang himself with a belt, I might not even find him until too late. And if I did, I worry that I wouldn't have the physical strength to save him. If staff, big, strong, trained adult men, can't manage Devon, how can I? Three placements later, I finally received the Department of Health and Human Services investigation report from the Spring Harbor incident with Mr. Jamal. I print the 47 pages of witness statements, media transcripts, and the official findings, and settle in to read. It all started because Devin was bored. He stripped to his underwear, always good for a laugh, and trotted into the common area. The boys hooted as he flapped his arms like bird wings. The fun didn't last long. The workers called for backup to take the other boys off of the unit. Sauntering to a window, Devin pulled down his underwear. He shook his naked bottom at the boys outside. Barking a laugh, Mr. Jamal imitated Devin, shaking his own clothed bottom out another window. The other on-duty staff a woman who I've never met, and Devon calls Miss Piggy, laughed. You stop it, Devon shrieked. In an effeminate voice, Mr. Jamal mimicked, you stop it. When Mr. Jamal didn't stop, Devin began masturbating. Mr. Jamal took the unspoken dare, dangling his lanyard between his legs, gyrating his hips and moaning. Several staff members watched via live video feed in a nearby office. They didn't step in. Instead, they discussed updating Devon's goals to include reducing sexual acting out. With Mr. Jamal egging him on, Devon mimed pushing a pencil up his rectum. Would Mr. Jamal take this stare? Grinning, Devon gingerly lowered his bottom flat onto the bench. Mr. Mark strode in and told Devon in a firm voice to get dressed. Devon immediately complied. Mr. Mark took Devon outside for a walk to burn off some energy. After that, the evening was peaceful. Devon had dinner, called home, and watched X Men. Later in his bed, and unable to sleep, Devon caught his name in a few snatches of conversation. Enraged, he rushed out of his room. You! You stop talking about me! He pointed a shaky finger at Mr. Jamal, who grinned. Let me call my mom, Devin punched out. Nope, Mr. Jamal's eyes narrowed into a grin. Phone time is over. I'm gonna fuck you up, bitch, Devin screamed, throwing a laundry basket and a trash can. Stop making fun of me, he screeched. Grabbing a plastic art stencil, he flung it toward Mr. Jamal, who was now advancing on him. Yelping and clutching at his eye, Mr. Jamal fell to his knees. Blood seeped between his fingers, and he growled, I'm gonna kill that little boy. Chill, chill, Mr. Mark intervened, leading Mr. Jamal away. Devon called after them. And don't you come back neither, or I'll hurt you worse. Mr. Jamal spun and bolted after Devon, who raced for his bedroom. He threw Devon onto the bed and slammed his fist into Devon's face. Again, then again, Mr. Mark dragged him off and away. While calling for backup, Mr. Mark urged Mr. Jamal, he's not worth it, think about your family. Mr. Jamal calmed. Okay, I'm okay. Standing, he turned toward the door as if to leave. When Mr. Mark relaxed his hold, Mr. Jamal twisted away and hurtled after Devin again. Screaming, Devin ran, but tripped. Mr. Jamal shoved him into the bathroom, slamming him into the bathtub. Grabbing a fistful of hair, he cracked Devin's head against the faucet, and blood gushed from the wound. Mr. Jamal's strong hands squeezed around Devin's throat. Panic-stricken, Devin kicked his legs, but Mr. Jamal was bigger and heavier. Devon couldn't breathe, couldn't escape. Finally, Mr. Jamal was pulled away and locked out of the unit. Someone helped Devin change out of his blood-soaked T-shirt. Laying on a bench, he held an ice pack to his head and cried, I need the police, call the police. Hush now, the nurse patted his arm. We're going to take you to the ER, honey. That cut needs sutures and we'll get you checked for a concussion. I want to call my mom first, Devin croaked. And someone gave him a cordless phone. Holding it for several long seconds, he'd stared at the glowing numbers before handing it back. Her won't believe me anyways. The report shakes in my hands. I set the pages down on my desk and cover my face with my hands. Devon was right. I hadn't believed him. Feeling nauseous, I wonder how many other times i failed him. Bile rises to my throat as I realize I don't have any good options. Devin isn't safe in these places, but how else can I keep the other kids safe? This is Ben, but he's in my coffee. If you'd like more information about reactive attachment disorder, please check out the show notes.